Could everybody welcome Mr. Galen Hackman um, to Parker Ford Church? If, uh, if you haven't met Galen and Doris, um, they're just an amazing couple and have pastored, uh, semi-retired, does consulting work, not really retired, <laughs> from, uh, and does pastoral uh, work all over the region, has been a mentor to a number, just a whole bunch of people. Tim and I have both uh, been blessed uh, by Galen. He's been my mentor uh, since I was licensed uh, five years ago and just an incredibly helpful voice in my life. And so from time to time, I invite Galen uh, to speak. And so I asked him to jump in on our Acts series. So uh, welcome, Galen, and thank you. Thank you. So good morning. It's good to be back uh, here again. It's been a while. I was trying to remember if it was a year or two years ago that I spoke here. I'm not sure, but it's kind of like old home week sometimes because there's a number of you here that I've known through other pastoral uh, you know, connections I've had uh, from Pottstown and Florin and here at Parker Ford. I, my connection to Parker Ford goes all the way back to when you were at the old location, you know, and Bob was your pastor, Bob Latshaw, and um, I was young. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what happened. <laughs> so um, a couple weeks ago, I was speaking at the Lampeter Church of Brethren, where Josh's dad is pastor. I'm helping them through a transition. Uh, uh, Josh's dad is planning to retire after being at the church for 20 years. I don't know about retire. I, I think retire, but transition. And he's got some ideas for other kinds of ministry, like, like I've done. So the funny thing was... Uh, we're, you know, I'm sitting up front, standing up front, it's worship time, you know, and, and the slides are like all screwed up. I mean, you know, and I, I always get a little agitated when you're trying to sing and the wrong slide comes up and, and I'm like, who is on that system back there? Turns out it was Josh's dad. <laughs> but the problem was I had the remote turned on in my pocket and I'm fiddling with this thing. So John and I are fighting each other. I'm moving the slides, unbeknown to anyone. He's figuring out what is wrong with this system. He's trying to get the slides back in, in place. Uh, and afterwards, he figured, finally he figured it out. And so I, I had it off this morning. So whatever technical problems we had you know, earlier inside, it wasn't me. Uh, so. Anyways, thanks for the opportunity to speak. And uh, as DJ said, he told me you're in, you're in the book of Acts. So he gave me the text. And I have no idea if I'm going to say the same thing he said, contradict everything he said, uh, undergird everything he said. I have no idea. So we're going to look at this passage from Acts 16, 6 to 15, which I've simply called Visions, Rivers, and Places of Prayer. Uh, it's a really interesting passage of Scripture. So if you have your Bible, flip open there to the book of Acts. Um, and uh, we're going to begin chapter 16, verse 6, reading through 15. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Pergia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision... We got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, he put out to sea and sailed through, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, 
And the next day, we went on to ne Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there for several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside to the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So you may know from the work you've done in Acts with um, DJ that the book of Acts records the days of the early church from the time of the ascension of Jesus and the day of Pentecost all the way up through the founding of churches through various uh, activities of the disciples, the missionary activities of Paul. It ends with Paul in prison in Rome uh, where it specifically states that he was there for two years in that particular prison thing. Now the thing, interesting thing about the book of Acts, uh, that as it moves along, I just put a magnifying glass in here to indicate the fact that the book of Acts starts kind of really wide, talking about all the disciples who are gathered in the upper room with the other people, about 120 people there, the day of Pentecost, where 3,000 people are, are converted, and then it follows kind of the, the activity of a couple of the apostles. But as Acts goes along, it gets, it's, the focus gets narrower and narrower and narrower. It begins with all those disciples, then soon you're only hearing about you know, Peter and a few others, and then soon by Acts 10, 11, 9, 10, 11, you're only basically hearing about Paul and his missionary activity. And that's not because nothing else is happening. All those other disciples went on their various ministries and missions, uh, uh, establishing churches and supporting the church and the like. But the purpose in Acts, as Luke was led by the Holy Spirit, Luke being the author of Acts, is to kind of focus in on how God took the gospel through the Apostle Paul, uh, to the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8 might be a good outline for the book of Acts, where Jesus said, after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to start here in, in Jerusalem. Uh, then you're going to go to Judea, kind of the province in which Jerusalem is located, then to Samaria, the next area, and eventually to the ends of the earth. And so Acts tracks that. So we lose, we lose track of some of the activity of the other disciples, not because it's not important, but because Luke's purpose is to bring this focus in on the Apostle Paul. So I don't know. That's probably all review, right? And let me talk a little bit more about review. So we break into this particular story uh, during the early stages of Paul's second missionary trip. Uh, his first missionary trip occurs... Uh, like in chapters 13 and 14 of the book of Acts. And his focus was primarily this particular area. He went from Antioch to Cyprus, and then up into Pamphylia, visiting these cities, ending up in Antioch, and then coming back. Uh, that Antioch is a different one than this one. This is Antioch, Antioch in Syria. So he comes back here, and that was a fairly short missionary trip, but he established his congregations in a lot of those particular cities. One of the interesting things that happened, as you probably know, during that journey is that though Paul always went to synagogues first to talk to the Jewish people, the primary, uh, the, the people primarily responding to his message during this first missionary journey weren't Jews, but were Gentiles. Kind of the everyone's surprise. It may even be the reason John Mark leaves the team 
when they leave Cyprus and hit the mainland. Uh, maybe he, we don't know, but perhaps he's feeling uncomfortable with this unexpected shift. Everybody thought Jewish people with their God-fearing background would respond to the message of their Messiah, Jesus, and they're not, but instead Gentiles are believing, and the church, actually these congregations, end up being predominantly Gentile congregations. By the end of the 100s, the church is predominantly Gentile in the, in the, uh, in the East. So anyway, um, <clears throat> Paul gets back from that missionary journey. Word kind of spreads that there's been this Gentile invasion of the church. Some people are concerned. Uh, Gentiles, don't, they're not circumcised. They don't know anything about Jewish law. What? requirement should this, and the apostles, including Paul, they're all Jewish in background, what should this Jewish Christian movement expect of non-Jewish Christian converts? And thus you have Acts 15. A conference is held, the leaders get together, they hear the story, uh, they discern a, a movement forward, and they basically release Gentiles from Almost all Jewish regulations, a couple significant things are asked of them. They create a letter, they give it to Paul and Barnabas, who were the first missionary in the first missionary journey, and they say, take this back to Antioch, clarify things, and so soon you see Paul beginning on a second missionary journey. He wants to revisit the churches that he was at before in this area. You can see this is the track of the second journey. He leaves Jerusalem, Jerusalem Council comes up to Antioch, he's there a bit, and they commission him to, to head out through and across Troas. This is the section you heard me read about. Paul wants to go up here to Bithynia. He wants to minister in Mysia. He's not allowed to by the Lord. And he ends up in Troas where he sees a vision. That's the passage we just read. Uh, partway, just the beginning of the second journey because eventually Paul gets over here. He spends 18 months in Corinth. He spends two years in Ephesus. So you see, we're just on the front end of this second missionary journey. And you'll plow through all the rest of that with DJ's leadership uh, as, we, as we head on. Uh, so anyway, um, that's just a bit of review and what we're talking about. So what I want to share with you as I looked at this passage is uh, that this passage of Scripture reveals what I think are four not so apparent but nevertheless significant. <laughs> I don't know, that's just me. Uh, not so apparent, but nevertheless significant things about our faith and our walk with God. You may not notice these first off as you work through this passage, but I think they are uh, quite apparent. DJ shared with me kind of the focus of Acts and the kind of things you're emphasizing. emphasizing and uh, so I think we'll learn some things through this passage. I want to end with just a couple observations. That One observation in particular that's really good for us. So anyway, four things. I know sermons are only supposed to have three points, but it's been a while since I was in seminary. <laughs> uh, first, <clears throat> first point, this passage records a singularly important event in the history of Christianity for which most of us here need to be eternally grateful. What is it? Not readily apparent. I say most of us here because I think we're probably all of Caucasian, Western descent, maybe not quite all of us. Some of us may have Southern or Eastern background, and that's really cool, we do. So going back to the map, um, <clears throat> why is this yellow and this brown? Is that brown? What is that? I don't know, whatever. 
why, why is, I mean, what are colors indicated maps? Different countries, right? Okay. And in this case, more than different countries, one imaginary line runs right up through from the Mediterranean up through the Aegean Sea, across here up into the Black Sea, and uh, eventually all the way to the Urals and up. One imaginary line, I'm giving this away to you guys. <laughs> the division between Europe and Asia. Europe is considered part of which continent, or which uh, hemisphere? The West. Asia is considered what hemisphere? The East, exactly. So an interesting thing happens as Paul hears this vision from the man of Macedonia, and he crosses the Aegean Sea, uh, right here. He crosses the Aegean Sea, and he, and he goes over to, to the area of Greece, Macedonia. He leaves Asia, the continent of Asia, and he enters the continent of Europe, which is Western culture. It's Christianity's initial contact beyond the Middle East. I mean, Christianity began within the Judaism of Eastern culture. Um, but as Paul crosses into Greece, he brings the gospel into the Western Hemisphere, to the continent of Europe, which are most of our ancestors. So, you, so for us, this is a significant event, which we should be eternally grateful, you understand. Uh, Christianity penetrates Western culture. And from there, as you know, history, uh, unfortunately, this area where Christianity was very strong during the first, second, third, fourth, fifth centuries becomes suppressed because of the expansion of Islam, where this area of Christianity, very soon there, Paul is in Rome. Um, he, he may have gotten to Spain. We know that uh, the Christians here take the gospel to England, and eventually it comes to the New World, and it flourishes in the West while it's struggling in the eastern part of the world where it initially was born and struggles to this very day. Some of us who will have traveled there or will travel there understand uh, the kind of struggles that they face. So I'll just share that with you as a not so apparent truth that comes from this passage. It's uh, significant for us as Christians. Secondly, <clears throat> this passage illustrates for us the practical nature of the Holy Spirit's guidance of those who seek to do the Lord's will. You may have noticed uh, some of these phrases that occur in the passage as we read them. First of all, verse 6, we're told that Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of uh, Perigia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And then verse 7 they came to the border of Mysia, and they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas, and Paul receives a vision of a man begging him to come on over. Really interesting, interesting phrases. Um, somehow Paul is sensing the leading of the Holy Spirit for he and his missionary team as they're crossing through Asia Minor and trying to move in particular directions. There's, there's towns, there's cities, there's people who need to hear the gospel, but for some reason, he's feeling that he's not let, he's not, that's not open to him. Uh, it's interesting to read the commentators on this, you know, guys that spend their lives studying scripture and reflecting on its meaning. You know, how, and I've often wondered this as, as I've read this passage. I don't know that I've ever preached specifically about from this text before, but I've often asked myself, how was it that Paul sensed 
that the Holy Spirit was keeping him from preaching, if the Spirit of Jesus was forbidding them, what, what, what was it? How, how did that happen? And commentators kind of all over the place, you know, uh, because we don't know. We're not given the background information. We're just given these particular statements. But they suggest to us how the Lord does lead those who desire to serve him. Um, and there's a variety of possibilities, aren't there? Uh, I just listed ways in which I've been led by the Lord uh, over time. You know, perhaps there was a prophetic word given. Somebody in the team or someone they met along the way has a word from God who says, you can't, you know, you can't go there. I was recently in Rwanda, and our plan was to go to the eastern border, eastern section of DR Congo, which is a little dicey, that area, and there's been riots. Actually, on the plane over, the guy sitting there next to this Congolese, he's like, you're going to Ubera? Oh, no, there's, there's been riots there. So we were seeking, as we were in Rwanda, we were seeking discernment. Do we go or don't we go? And uh, one guy in Rwanda says, don't go. The guy in Congo says, come. <laughs> so am I getting, a, am I getting a, uh, a prophetic word not to go, or do I have a Macedonian call to go? Well, we went, and everything was fine. But uh, we get prophetic, prophetic words sometimes. Or there's inner promptings. You know, you just feel. You can't quite name it, describe it. You know, you just feel. This, this is, I think about going, I, I, I'm uneasy about that. Was it that kind? Was it, a, was it an inner prompting? Was it a prophetic word? Was it, you know, was it the counsel of others? Not necessarily a prophetic word. And like my friend in Rwanda, it wasn't a prophetic word. It was his advice. He's like, I, I don't recommend that you go over there. Um, uh, it, was there a significant scripture that the Lord brought to their mind as they were praying and meditating about this? Was it circumstances? In other words, uh, there weren't any more tickets available on the flight. <laughs> no, there wouldn't have been any flights. But you know what I mean. Like, uh, uh, there was an avalanche and the road is closed. We can't go that way. Was it because sometimes God just shuts a door, right? And in hindsight, we might look back and say, wow, that was, that was the Holy Spirit. At the time, I was like put out a bit because I couldn't complete my objective. But now I recognize that was God's way of saying to me, no, you, you can't do that. Or was it some kind of physical trial? One commentator says he thinks it was Paul's illness. You know, Paul struggled with an illness, a, a thorn in the flesh. And that's predicated on something I'm going to share next uh, on this uh, as we get to the next section. But... Uh, we don't know. We, the bottom line is we don't know. So why do I share all this? Just to suggest to you, to encourage you with the fact that the Lord does lead us in very practical ways. Uh, very definitive ways sometimes, very subtle ways sometimes, but as we're praying and committing our way to the Lord, we should trust that God is leading us, and we should pay attention to those words, those inner promptings, the scriptures. We need to pay attention. To, to life around us because God is going to lead us and guide us in that significant way. And of course, we know that God had another purpose for Paul. It was time to take the gospel to Europe. It was time to sow the seeds that would eventually bring Jesus to us. And so uh, Paul didn't know that at the time, but he keeps heading east, and he ends up at Troas, which is a seaport. And while he's there, he receives this vision from the Lord. So another kind of not-so-obvious, and yet, Significant truth that we can learn from this particular passage of Scripture. The third thing is this. Uh, 
passage encourages us not to do ministry alone. It wasn't just Paul, it was a team of people. Um, it was Paul uh, and Silas in particular. But I just want to drop back a bit, and apologies if DJ already unpacked all of this for you. But, you know, it was Paul and Barnabas who did the first missionary journey, along with John Mark, who left partway through uh, that journey. And so uh, Acts 15, 36 to 40, tells you about, about uh, how it came time for this second journey now. And Paul and Barnabas want to form a team for this second journey. And um, Barnabas says, uh, let's take Mark with us, John Mark. And by the way, Barnabas and John Mark are what the scripture calls cousins, which is actually in Greek a word for relative. It may have been cousin, may have been second cousin, may have been his brother somebody, I don't know. But there's a relationship there. So you might say Barnabas, who is a, you know, his tagline is he's a man of compassion. You know, Barnabas is a, you know, so whether it's his, because it's his relative or that he's just this kind of guy, he's like, I know John Mark failed us the last time, but we should take him along. Paul's like, absolutely not. Now, later, Paul and John Mark are reconciled later in Scripture. But at this point, Paul's like, absolutely not. He deserted us. So what happens is we end up with two missionary teams. Paul, uh, uh, Barnabas takes John Mark, and he heads out to... Uh, Cyprus, Crete, Cyprus, Crete, one of the islands. Um, uh, Cyprus, there it is, uh, verse 39. And Paul takes Silas, and early in the second missionary journey, picks up Timothy, and they become the second team. So uh, I'm simply sharing the fact that Paul's missionary work wasn't done alone. It was always done in a team. And sometimes God even used disagreements to create multiple teams. <laughs> uh, how about that? You know, so now we have two. Now, like I say, Acts goes broad and goes narrow. So here we lose sight of Barnabas and John Mark and the work that they do because Luke is tracking Paul and the work that he's going to do with Silas and later with Timothy. So um, the other thing we notice in this section is that the, the they become we which is, um, if you track Acts closely, there are passages that we call the we sections to Acts, where the author is including himself. And the first one occurs here. You notice in verse 11, well, let me say, um, verse 11, um, verse 10, starts in verse 10. That should be 10, sorry about that, say 11. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready, before this, it is they, look at verse 7, when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to do that. So they passed from Mysia and went down to Troas during the night. Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. The shift from they to we, what does that indicate? It's subtle. It's not so apparent, but significant. What does that suggest, the shift from they to we? Huh? Yes, whoever is writing the book of Acts, which is Luke, is now with them and a part of the experience. So there's these four sections, five sections, five, in the book of Acts, 
that are we sections where Luke includes himself. And this leads one scholar to say, why did, why did Luke, who is what? what? What is Luke's profession? Physician, right. Why did Luke, the physician, join Paul at this time? Maybe he was ill, and that's what kept him from going to these other regions. We don't know that. It's speculation. But Luke does join the party, and now it becomes a first-person narrative for a little season. Then it's back to they, then it's back to we, it's back to they. And you can track that as you work through the rest of the gospel. I'm sharing it simply to say we don't do ministry alone. And one of the things I do is work with congregations. Uh, I work with a small network of churches uh, that are connected together. I work with some congregations that have left their denominational roots and are now functioning in an independent capacity. And one of the words I say to them is you should never, you should never do ministry alone. You, you need to be in relationship with others. Leaders need to be in relationship with other leaders. Churches need to be in relationship with other churches. It doesn't have to be a denomination, but there has to be a relationship where you, you, you kind of exist beyond yourself. You know, you can get really myopic if it's just you. And uh, passages like this remind me of the importance of doing ministry together as team. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we need to share together and minister together like that. And then fourthly, I said there's four. This passage reminds us that the gospel is for everyone and is often first received by those least likely chosen by us. So you notice that um, they, they come in uh, verse 11 to Troas, then they cross over to Philippi, a Roman colony in Macedonia, in Europe now, and then they say in verse 13, um, on the Sabbath we went out, Side the city to the river where we expect to find a place of prayer. Um, what we know is that Philippi did not have a synagogue of Jewish people because there were not enough people of Jewish descent present. You need ten men in order to organize a synagogue. You can't have nine. You need ten or more. And so there wasn't a place of of worship, uh, the synagogue in Philippi. So uh, whenever there wasn't an official synagogue and an unorthodox synagogue formed, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because you get keep people who want to worship for worshiping. And of course, this had to be a bit under the radar, right? So it was outside of town by a river. Why by a river? Well, one thing Jews have to do is they have to wash a lot all these ceremonial washings that you do. So Paul, no doubt, asks, well, isn't there some kind of unorthodox synagogue around here? And he goes out by the river, and lo and behold, he finds one. And, and amazingly, it's, it's women. <laughs> it's not even men. So this is extremely unorthodox. Sorry, women. Not that there's anything wrong with women gathering for worship. But in Jewish custom, it took ten men to form a synagogue. Not nine men and one woman. That would not work. And so this is a group of women who are gathering out there by the river to pray, a kind of unlikely synagogue, an unlikely connection. And here is Lydia, who is a God-fearing woman and a seller of expensive fabric. No doubt, if you read about this fabric, no doubt somewhat upper class, dealing in a very expensive fabric in the ancient world. But she is God-fearing, which is code in Scripture for a Gentile, who has an interest in 
the God of Israel, the historic, you know, orthodox understanding of God, but has not converted to Judaism, then she would be a proselyte. Uh, so she is a Gentile who is fascinated by the, Jew, the, the God the Jews worship, and she's hanging out with a bunch of unorthodox Jews who are in an unorthodox synagogue by the river outside of Philippi. And Paul comes there and shares the gospel. And who believes? She does. Maybe the least likely of the bunch to believe. And her house, her home and household, um, and those two words mean different things in the Bible. The home is your house, your domicile, the place that you live. Your household are your kids, your business associates, your servants, maybe even slaves. It's not said that she's had any. Uh, But, you know, a household was larger than what we think of in respect to a home. It's maybe like you had going for you when uh, Paul was living with you. This guy, it's a household, especially if you had them working for you. (laughs) They were right. They were mowing the yard and stuff. Uh, So Lydia's home and household quickly become an an indispensable link in the expansion of the kingdom of God. You hear it here at the end of this passage. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. And then Paul and Silas go to prison. That's DJ's preaching about that next week. After they're released from prison, they go back to her house. She cares for them before uh, they move on uh, to another city of, of ministry. So I'm just reminded of the fact that those that we might often exclude in our mind, in our way of thinking, as people who are going to respond to the message, are oftentimes the first ones to believe. And so we need to be very careful, you know, that we don't, you know, pre-decide in some kind of judgmental, you know, or discriminatory way who is worthy of hearing the gospel and who is not. It would have been easy for Paul to say, oh, that's... Yeah, that's an, un, that's an unorthodox, uh, un, unauthorized gathering out there by the river, and I, it's a bunch of women, and no. But he goes, he shares, and a lady of means responds to the gospel. And every indication is, we don't know a lot about her, is that she became an indispensable part of the expansion of the kingdom in Macedonia and maybe even beyond. Um, So you just never know how the Lord may open someone's heart. So four, uh, not so readily apparent, but I think significant truths that help shape us. Now, in closing, let me just say, you know, that Acts, uh, it's interesting, right now I'm working with two other congregations who have felt led to study Acts. One's kind of finishing up. The other one's in the midst of it somewhere, and you guys, so that's three of you. They felt led to study Acts. And sometimes you come to Acts like, we need to go back and replicate what's going on in Acts. If we could just become the church of the book of Acts, we'd be fine. The fact is you can't, you know? Acts records for us a transition from the old covenant to the new. That is, the closing down of the the Old Testament, the old covenant, Judaism as being the, you know, the, the, the people of God who God is going to use to build his kingdom to this new era. Uh, instead of the Mosaic law, now we live under the law of Christ, the grace of the gospel of Jesus, and this open door to the Gentiles. I mean, this Acts records for us this amazing transition. And as such, the experiences of Acts can never really be duplicated by us. You're not going to have another day of Pentecost. 
like that. There's only one like that. Um, and so I think it's a mistake for us to think, oh, we're, we're going to replicate this. It's going to, there's going to be a duplication in our life. That's, and that's not what Acts, that's not the purpose that Acts serves in the canon of Scripture or in our experience as we read it. But instead, I think, what Acts does is illustrates life in the kingdom. What does it mean to be people of God? What does it mean to have a, an ear tuned to the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to follow God wherever he leads us? And so Acts illustrates life in the kingdom. And as such, the experience of Acts should serve as paradigms for us. Paradigms and examples, right? A model. And these are examples to us that we might be willing to press into a similar relationship with God, though we'll be taken to different places and have different experiences, but a similar relationship with God where we know that we're being led by the Holy Spirit and we're working together with others as we forward the kingdom of God among us. And who knows? what doors the Lord will open for the kingdom through our obedience. Now, I was thinking as Paul and his wife, Beth, sorry, were sharing about a missionary. My wife and I also served abroad as missionaries for a while. We are all missionaries, every one of us as a believer in Jesus Christ. We are all missionaries. The question is not, are you called to be a missionary or not? The question is, where is your mission field? Uh, few of us are called to live abroad, but all of us are called to live somewhere and to be missionaries where we're called to live. And the book of Acts has a lot for us if we view our lives as missionaries, whether it's, you know, living here on Old Schoolkill Road or whatever, or in Pottstown or Central Asia. That's our calling. And Acts speaks to us about how we go about that. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that comes to us through the book of Acts. A history book in some ways, but more than that, a book of life that models for us what it means to follow you into the kingdom of God. So bless us, each of us, in our calling to be missionaries wherever we serve with these simple truths that come to us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen.